spirituality, consciousness, health, and mindset. Welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Together, we are all wisdom and knowledge. Hey, what is up everyone? This week on the Ascend podcast, we're joined by Freddie Silver to delve into the spiritual side and the world of the ancients. And Freddie is one of the leading experts on ancient knowledge, secret sites, and a leading researcher into the interaction between temples and consciousness. He's a best-selling author and director of several documentaries. He lectures internationally on a variety of topics on ancient wisdom and earth mysteries. And secret sites have long been the focus of intrigue and mystery for countless generations. And new information is coming to light all the time, revealing more and more great findings, not only about the technological capability of ancient cultures, but also in retrospect, the advancement of the minds of the ancient people. The way they viewed the world, the way they actually interacted with the natural world, and this is an angle that we've wanted to delve into on this podcast for a while now. As a big catalyst on my own journey was me as a young teenager viewing the pyramids, and I was being and I was completely intrigued and in awe of these fantastic structures. And from that journey, all the way up to now, it's inspired me to ask more and more questions in regards to the way the ancients were thinking, especially when it comes to the mysteries of life. And in this podcast, we delve into the role played by secret sites in raising human consciousness. We talk about the ancient death rituals that the ancient Egyptians used to attain different states of consciousness. We talk about how the evidence of the temples mark geomagnetic hotspots capable of inducing shamanic states validating the ancient belief that the sites are living organisms. And Freddie also talks about how this global network was actually built as an insurance policy for future generations for times when needed to be reminded that we are also to the gods. And we also talked about how these secret sites of consciousness can bring about spiritual transformation, everyone on the planet, and so much more. You're going to absolutely find so much interesting thinking points from this podcast. So as you know, me and Chris absolutely embody so much of our time and lives in this podcast. And we really do just want to keep continuing bringing you more and more amazing conversations and content. And with your help, we can really take this to another level. So if you do believe in what we're doing and do want to support this podcast, you can do so now by going to our Patreon page and just checking out all the different reward tiers that we set up for you. We even have a $2 reward tier that gives you access to bonus content. And in the process, you support the podcast. And we've also just added a new one-hour podcast conversation to that Patreon page where me and Chris get very personal and delve and talk a bit about our personal journeys. So if you would like to check that out, all you need to do is sign up for for any Patreon reward tier and in the process, support the podcast. And I just wanted to also say as well, we love that you're coming on this journey with us. We're a part of your journey but yous are also a big part of our journey. So anyway, let's jump in with this one. Enjoy. So Freddie, um, are you okay to are you okay to jump in, yeah? 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, cool. We're really, look, we're really looking yeah, forward to definitely. this. And um, we're absolutely. Whereabouts are you? Uh, we're in um, Newcastle. Not far from Newcastle. In the middle of oh, Newcastle okay. and Durham. Oh, well, that's why you sound almost half Scottish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, half Scottish, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we'll get close to the podcast. And... <laughs> <laughs> no, don't, don't go there. We'll never understand each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the joke about the Glasgow Mafia. We'll make you an offer you can't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. But anyway, yeah, Freddie, um, we're really looking forward to having a conversation with you today and um, we absolutely love your research that you do bring to the table and the way that you bring it, um, sort of a unique angle to the conversation because you really are looking at sort of questions with a scientific point of view. But you sort of as well, what I've noticed that you're even reaching deeper in the sort of deeper layers of actually what was going on in the minds of the ancients as well. And we would definitely love to... Um, love to go deep into these topics and we're both really fascinated by the spiritual side of the ancients and of what that sort of element does bring to their sort of minds and things like that and we've wanted to have a conversation about this for absolute ages now but just before we do go there because we're definitely going to delve deep i mean i would love to know um why did you actually choose to research these deeper layers and what actually drew you to research and development understanding of the connection between the spiritual world when it comes to ancient civilizations um, I think it just progressed. I mean, I always had a fascination for the ancient world because I never really believed uh, the orthodox view. Something about the way that the evidence was presented, that these people being, you know, stupid, loincloth-wearing people uh, who should drag their wives through the hair down in the caves, it, it did make no sense. I mean, these people were building pyramids, and today we can't even build chairs that don't wobble. So it seems to me that they knew something that we've actually lost and uh, just by a matter of investigating more and more and uh, traveling the world and examining things from a uh, actually a non-European point of view, because so much of what we know it comes from a very sort of jaundiced, narrow-minded Victorian approach to things that, uh, you know, Northern Europeans were more so much more advanced than the rest of anybody on Earth. Turns out that the more you travel, the more you learn that they're actually way ahead of anybody else. Uh, and it also begins to realize that uh, what they were building, uh, whether it was a pyramid, uh, an underground temple and so forth, uh, a lot of these places, uh, despite the fact that they are astrologically aligned, it also turns out that they also harness a certain what I call a spiritual technology, uh, which we now know through our various scientific means uh, that these uh, when you put these things together, that they do ally to your uh, reference to uh, altered states of consciousness. So that's why I got so fascinated that to think that people five, ten thousand years ago were building temples to last until our time, as though they even foresaw that we would lose our connection to the bigger picture, and they built places that where we, we could go and find that connection. So that's why I was so fascinated to uh, get into this story. Fascinating, really, man. Uh, so, Freddie, with uh, the building of these ancient sites, and I know you've done a lot of research and study there, what would you say is the intent behind the building of these incredible structures? Oh, I think there's uh, several intents. Uh, first of all, I think that... Um, uh, I'll start with, it, with the sort of more dark side of this. I think that there was a warning. Uh, there's, uh, I mean, if you and I were to go out and wanted to build a place, let's say a stone circle, everybody knows those, um, so many stone circles are uh, carrying uh, astronomical connections. They are aligned to the stars, the moon, the sun, and so forth. And you wonder, you know, you don't need 50-ton rocks to tell you that. You can just go out with a stick 
and uh, you know line a whole bunch of sticks on your lawn, and you can pretty much figure out the uh, agricultural calendar when you want to plant things. So it seems to me that uh, why they built so many of these things and why so many of them seem to be linked to long-term uh, cycles, calendar cycles, uh, particularly in the Mayan world, it's as though they could foresee uh, the, a point in our civilization where we would need to know and keep track of the stars and the heavens and what they were doing. And I'm currently working on a project, uh, which is kind of I'm trying to find a missing civilization uh, that went under the water uh, when the last flood hit the earth in 9700 BC. And uh, it seems to me that uh, they were pretty much telling us uh, that life is based on cycles. And these cycles are recurring, and uh, there's no way really to stop them, uh, but you can prepare for them. And it seems to me that uh, the more I observe these temples, the more they seem to be telling us to keep an eye on the sky, because every once in a while the earth gets hit by a lot of meteorites, and uh, there's big floods, that, uh, there are big uh, tectonic shifts, and we then uh, end up losing nine-tenths of the entire population. So it seems to me that the part of the, uh, the strategy uh, and the intent was to tell future generations to keep track of what the heavens are do doing and your place in it, because there are cycles that you should really be aware of. So that's the dark side to, uh, to that. And the lighter side to it was the fact that um, they were very much aware, and this is pretty much evident in every ancient culture in the world, um, that we down here are having a kind of a spiritual death uh, when you enter the body. They were very much aware that uh, the soul is pretty much the end all and be the all of everything. And when you come into the earth plane or the material world, you basically inhabit a very limited vessel called the body. And they could see the limitations uh, to the point where you know, if, if you look at certain animals, for example, they can hear uh, things uh, more than we can. They can perceive things more than we can. So they could see that there were certain limitations. And yet there were all of these dream states that they had that were telling them that there was something much more going on besides the physical world. So part of the intent for building these sites was to get you out of your head uh, as much as you can. And uh, we now know and I just uh, uh, my current book uh, pretty much deals with that with the uh, what's called the lost art of resurrection, and it has little to do with um, the person you think it uh, refers to. Uh, yeah. It's to do, yes, it's to do with a sort of a personal resurrection, a spiritual resurrection where you actually leave the body. And I'm not talking about shamanism. I'm talking about leaving the body in complete control, so that uh, just as you and I are having this conversation. Uh, totally uh, aware of you know the logical thread that links us together across uh, the Atlantic, um, they were able to figure out a way where you would enter these buildings and you would have a deliberate and induced near-death experience, which is very dangerous, uh, but very controlled, and you would leave the body and you'd go walk about in the, in the other world uh, to the point where you could extract very valuable information from another level of existence. And you were expected to return back into your body and carry on as usual, except now you are much more awake, more alive. That's why they call them uh, the uh, raising the dead, you know, because when you are, you know, working around life shopping and watching television and uh, paying attention to your iPhone all day long, those people would be considered the dead. They're just not aware spiritually of what's going on in the bigger picture. So the intent was really to try and design areas where you could actually, for a few moments or even several days, and in one case that I found in Persia, for an entire week, 
you could leave the earthbound existence and get some real information. You could figure out the mechanics of nature, how the universe works. And a lot of the people that uh, did this, including famous philosophers and mathematicians in the old days, they claimed that uh, it really helped to shape not just their spiritual development, but it also gave them a sense of self-empowerment here on the earth. And that's very dangerous to people who are trying to create, you know, new religions and things like that. And, and politicians, they don't want you to be in control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so again, it was a try and give you a sense of this, the, uh, make your soul aware of its purpose here on earth, and also to go about your life in a much more aware state to a point where you can actually control your manifestation process, which can be a very um, it can be dangerous, it can be practical, but it can also get your ego. So you've got to be careful how you apply this stuff. Um, so they, they definitely uh, could, uh, were very so much aware of the natural world and the bigger picture outside of the earth that they were able to build these things so that uh, we, coming around 5,000 years later, would know where to go when we lost the plot. We could connect to these sites, and we can. I take people to tours around the world, and a week later, they're not the same when they come back to their daily lives. You can see that something has fundamentally changed in them. So there, there's a two-point intent to, uh, to why they were building these temples. Uh, there was a, a practical mechanical function, but there was also a, a highly spiritual function. Yeah, wow. What an interesting insight there, by the way. And there's so many things I was thinking of in my head there to take that there. And there's some points as well I want to go back to as well before when you were talking about um, the death rituals and things like that. I definitely want to go back to there. But as well, yeah, there's so much <laughs> well, on there's so much more into the rabbit hole yeah yeah, yeah definitely we on this part yeah minutes. we've been there definitely we're going to go there again <laughs> but um <laughs> when you were when you were saying before about how uh, the minds had this understanding that life is um, built on cycles i want to go there first because how do you actually think they the minds because obviously i know as well and chris knows that the minds were very a fascinating culture and a, a culture that was arguably very much intelligent and very aware with the natural world they're very aware with all these different sort of energy systems around the world and things like that but how do you think they actually developed that understanding that life is built on cycles? It was actually, I pretty much learned it uh, in the last few years when I was going down to the Yucatan. And I had a, um, you know, I, and of course, down there you have to have an official guide. So myself not being an official guide, in other words, I don't pay people to, <laughs> or an organization to do what I'm supposed to be doing for free. Uh, I have to have a guy down there who's uh, a Mayan elder, uh, and it, I, I lucked out. I uh, really got together with a wonderful guy uh, called Miguel Vergara, uh, and uh, we become very good friends. And uh, we really didn't know anything about each other uh, when we started this tour. And uh, through conversation every day, we would be shocking each other with the fact that it's, you know I come from a Western point of view, he comes from this Central American point of view, and we found we we're talking exactly the same language which got me interested in asking more questions about the Maya. Uh, and he said, well, you know, what you actually know in the West is only a tiny, tiny fraction that is learned through the codices that were written down, sometimes under pressure by the Spanish priests. And uh, all of those people having come from the time of the Inquisition, um, the Maya did not give away very much because they were hiding this stuff uh, under people's kitchens. I mean, even today, the Maya who still exist in the Yucatan will tell you that there's a lot of stuff that's been written down that is hidden in uh, people's houses that the Spanish did not find. And a lot of it is also uh, learned verbally. So you've got to memorize all this stuff. So he's one of these wisdom keepers. And uh, I had it. Um, I had this idea, a premonition, 
that the Maya actually come from a much older civilization because they just appeared suddenly out of nowhere in 3100 BC with a complete language, complete cosmology, complete mathematical system, complete civilization. That just doesn't happen. Uh, you have to have a growing process which takes thousands of years. And it seems to me that logically, Someone else had to come there with all of this information already intact and pass it on. So through conversation, he said, yes, actually, there was another civilization here. And uh, they escaped a sinking land in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, and uh, they were called the Itza, which we'll get, we'll get the word Chichen Itza from. And Itza basically translates as a, a magician or a sorcerer. Uh, someone who basically has power over the laws of nature, because that's what sorcerer is. You're, ta you're basically tapping into the source, nothing, nothing evil. And um, the Itza uh, basically came across from uh, the sinking continent in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, they moved to the Yucatan. They built the foundation of the cities there that we see today. And then, of course, as time goes by, the Maya then begin to build on top of those, which is why they always look like Russian dolls, because they are. They're built from age to age and they're expanded. And the Itza eventually ended up in Guatemala in a massive, massive lake called Lake Atitlan, in honor of the uh, Atlantic Ocean and the land that they came from. And in fact, you can still go onto that little island, uh, which is uh, a beautiful, beautiful little island. And um, you can actually get to relive uh, uh, in miniature the uh, uh, their version of Atlantis, which is where they came from. And for these people in, in the Yucatan, for them mentioning Lemuria or Atlantis, they don't even bat an eyelid. For them, it's absolutely real. And they're saying, I, I can't believe it in the West scientists and historians think this is absolute nonsense i mean they really are short-circuiting their information so that's your answer there they basically inherited this information from an incoming uh, culture which they then grew on top but here's the funny part the maya really don't exist uh, the uh, Maya is essentially a state of mind. It's kind of like calling someone a Maori. Um, you talk to Maori people and they'll say, well, actually, Maori is, is like a, a way of being. It's a way of living. It's a spiritual uh, uh, aspect that you follow. So if enough people follow it, then we are all Maya, basically. And uh, that was very uh, enlightening because a lot of Native American um, cultures also talk uh, about the same way. That, uh, you know, for example, you know, the Hopi said, well, Hopi is more of a way of being than a, like a, instead of being someone whose DNA you can actually figure out. We're not an exact tribe, for example. We're more of a, a, a group of people who follow a certain spiritual ideal. So a lot of revelations when you get to travel. Yeah, wow. What another powerful answer, by the way, as well. And when you said there as well about how the Maya is actually a state of mind, that was actually making me raise loads of questions in my mind there because I was actually thinking, what sort of level of consciousness were that then people have to be on as well? But before I do go there as well, I need to get back to this point as well because um, before as well, when you started talking about um, the start of your journey and you were talking about how um, one of the main things that drew you to sort of searching this information was actually because you were actually questioning are the do certain ancient structures actually all uh, sort of uh, perceptions in the mind or even all the states of consciousness i mean do you actually think i mean do you think these ancient structures around the world may have actually played a role in raising human consciousness and maybe still doing so now oh absolutely uh, and that was the whole purpose behind it because the idea was if these things weren't around uh the earth right now would be in a hell of a lot worse shape than it is now um, the thing to understand about human consciousness is that uh, it's twofold. Uh, first of all, you and I are here 
on a personal journey, uh, which may sound very selfish, but it's absolutely true. Uh, we are individual souls. We incarnate on this planet to have uh, a specific experience. And the trick is you won't know what it is until you die. Uh, if you're able to figure out what it is until, uh, before you die, you're way ahead of anybody else. Uh, it's almost like a universal joke. Uh, but at the same time, you're also tapping into a group consciousness. So you actually appear here right now because you want to be part of something that's going on. And uh, the idea behind these temples is to wake up the individual soul to see their picture, uh, to see themselves in, their, in the big picture of things, but also remind them of who they are and their purpose in life. So you have a twofold journey here. So the idea was, and that uh, you, you you can read this actually, uh, that's carved on some of the temples in Egypt. Um, in fact, it's a bit of a joke that they, they wrote on one of the temples. They said, and I quote, uh, we will continue building temples until people recognize the temple within them. Wow. So basically, if you have, if the priest used to walk around and say, well, how are we doing with uh, the bigger picture? Uh, humans are getting much more elevated in their consciousness. Um not as much as we'd like. Okay, let's build another temple and remind them. Uh, because a temples essentially were described as the uh, physical interpretations of a god. And the god back then wasn't a guy with a beard uh, that walks around with a big stick uh, dishing out judgment. Uh, a god was a force of nature. That's all a god was. So for the temples are essentially the concretization of the forces of nature. And that's why they look so perfect, because nature is perfect. They, they were just imitating things in stone. And the idea was, uh, and the, the Egyptians and the Indians uh, said this, uh, that is from India, not from uh, uh, America, um, they were saying the same thing, that uh, the temples exist to remind you of the bigger picture, to transform the ordinary human into a god, but also to raise the level of humanity so that by, being, by watching the temple, by going to the temple, by building cities like temple cities, like they used to in the old days, uh, Washington, D.C. would be considered the temple city built by people who understood this originally. Uh, but here's the, uh, the rub. Uh, it's just it's all about manipulation of energy and energy doesn't give a damn one way or the other yeah. uh, it's the intent that you bring to this energy uh, that actually defines its direction so if you come at it from a point of view of working with these temples or the temple city uh, in a very elegant way that benefits you and everyone then obviously you see people rising to the occasion but humans being what they are uh, you know they the world gets the better of them and they do fall by the wayside and there are times through history where we go up we go down we go up we go down and that's the way it's always been uh, so right now for example you know the people that have uh, control of uh, Washington DC uh, I would say they're probably doing things for very nefarious purposes they may not even be aware of what uh, the place that they're living in but the fact is that the energy will feed off that and it will multiply it. Yeah. Uh, that's why these things were considered to be very secret because they were very dangerous in the wrong hands. So you see how the temple becomes a, a, a mirror image, uh, almost like a, a mirror by which you should live by. It, it, it's a code. It's a perfect code to aim for. And by surrounding yourself in a perfect environment, hopefully you become part of that environment. And that was always the aim. But you can't force people to, uh, to think the same way. You can't force them to do things if they don't want to. Yeah. So humanity will always sort of be a point of, uh, of change. You know, they'll always be going up, they'll always be going down. It'll always be a state of flux, but uh, without the temples, uh, the temple cities, uh, like I said, we'll be in a complete state of barbarism. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd agree with that, by the way, as well, because um, when you were saying there about how the temples are actually there to remind you, it's very interesting because I have a personal story as well, because when I was, so looking back on my journey, 
looking back now at a big catalyst for me what I recognise now is was actually the Egyptian pyramids because I can always remember when I was younger I was always actually sort of questioning and, and viewing them and thinking wow how were they built and things like that even from a young age as well when I wouldn't even see that I was woke up in the mind sort of say as well so looking back now I definitely recommend uh, recognise that on some sort of um let's say some sort of subconscious subconscious level that I don't fully understand the were sort of affecting my mind and even to the point I'm at now on my journey as well I mean I've been think I've been I've, this is why I, I would love to get you on I would want to really get you on the podcast as well because I know you can go into these realms as well because I've been wanting <laughs> yeah, I've been wanting to ask this question for ages because it's been on my mind I've, I've told Chris about it as well yeah. but I started doing a bit of research in a book called because um, I was getting fascinated by how like you said before, start your journey, how ancient structures can sort of make you question your state of reality, let's say. And it's very interesting because I was reading a book called um, Shivers Down Your Spine, and it's about architecture, because I was digging like in loads of different areas because I'm really fascinated by it. And the book was actually talking about when we are in, um, when we are near amazing structures, let's say like the pyramids and things like that, but not even near the pyramids as well, when we actually just view them, say, like visually through like a, a picture or even on the TV or whatever it is, they actually sort of designed in some sort of way that we don't understand to make you actually question things and actually put your mind in a sort of like a state of awe and hack your perception, let's say. But it's very interesting because in that book as well, it was talking about how these experiences through that as well can actually make you um, sort of stretch your perceptual boundaries and create new maps of realities in your mind. Oh, absolutely. In fact, there was um, a wonderful experiment that was done years ago by uh, Princeton University uh, and uh, their charge was to basically um, go and look at the fine line between science and mysticism. And one of the experiences that they did was uh, required the actual designing of a special computer, which is able to uh, measure the local environment uh, with and without the influence of human consciousness. And I mean um, uh, directed human consciousness, not just people going around shopping, uh, actual people in a state of meditation or they're actually sending their consciousness to a certain location. And uh, the nuts and bolts of this experiment was extraordinary because it really proved what the ancients were saying, that the buildings by themselves are living beings. In fact, the, the Egyptians even used to rouse the, uh, each room of the temple every morning before dawn as though they're waking a, a, a living person from sleep. It's very romantic. Uh, but uh, Princeton basically went around the sacred sites around the world and they, they were able to measure the fact that when you just stand in the vicinity of the sacred site, the um, computer systems go way up. They start registering frequencies which were and above uh, that, that, that would be measured by, say, a meditating group. Uh, they then obviously uh, did control experiments uh, in like Walmart car parks to see if the, uh, the energy was there. And of course, it, it, there wasn't anything there that was really um, measurable. Uh, but then what they found was that when they took a meditating group to the uh, Egyptian temples, they found that the uh, needle literally went through the roof. And yet, uh, despite the fact that uh, when you take the people away, the principal scientist in the experiment was able to just walk around uh, some of the temples in one of the pyramids, I believe, at Giza, and he found that by taking one of the uh, small portable computers with him, just the temple by itself registered frequencies as high as a meditating group. So the idea was that you know the temple is alive; it still is, uh, and that it has a huge influence on you, whether. Uh, whether you meditate there or not, whether you just happen to be in the vicinity of it or not, it will influence you. And there was another famous experiment that was actually in, uh, in Avery, in England, uh, the world's biggest stone circle. It was uh, monitored for electrical frequency uh, and magnetic current. 
and uh, there were probes put all over Avebury, all around Avebury, and uh, essentially after a few years of experiments, they found that just before dawn, all the electromagnetic energy of the land suddenly gets shoved and attracted down the avenue of stones, and, it's, and it goes into the big ditch, and it goes around and around and around like a particle collider. And then, as the moment that the sun creeps over the horizon, it's like this invisible door opens between the two big entry stones, and all the energy charges into the center of Avebury, and sometimes at double the frequency of the surrounding land. So the place really becomes alive at dawn, and uh, this is why so many people like doing their meditations and going to these sites then, because there is an energy there, and that energy also exists inside the human body. So in a way, walking into the temple is walking into a big version of you, uh, a perfect version of you. So you can see how the two then exchange information, and you should be able to walk out, like I said, as a god. Wow. That was absolutely fantastic. I love the way you view that as well, by the way, the mm. way you view it. It was absolutely really in-depth, yeah, incredible. And what oh, else? Just in a case of wine to my house, and I'll, I'll let you go. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, it is, it is fascinating that we have all of these, what I call, self-help centers all around us. Uh, and, of course, in Britain, we're very lucky because we have thousands of these places. Uh, and uh, it, it's a wonderful way to sort of, you know, if you're feeling a little bit out of sorts, uh, just let your body sort of go to one of these places, you know, just go and sit somewhere quietly. And you'd be amazed how much stuff gets sorted out in no time. You don't have to take your brain there. Just take your body. Just let yourself flow in there. And before you realize it, you go home and you're a completely different person. So it's much cheaper than a visit to the NHS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lot quicker too. <laughs> it sounds as well. Um, if, yeah, from what I'm thinking as well, um, it's like from what you and Dan were saying, it's to me it feels like it's like an artist like decodes messages within the artwork and like civilizations of the past could have like understood the art of like creating a building or architecture to like consciously or even subconsciously hack, hack our perception and how we're even thinking like do you think ancients actually may have understood like a deeper understanding about how the human mind works and how to maybe like subconsciously affect the civilization thousands of years in the future Oh, absolutely. They had complete control of the laws of nature. And once you have that, you're basically going into the hard drive. And once you got hold of the hard drive and you know what you're doing, well, your brain basically is the software and you tell the hard drive what to do and you can, you know, become much more than the sum of your parts. So oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, in fact, when uh, during the 50s and the 60s, when the Russians were hard up for money, they were actually looking at all of this mumbo jumbo and they thought, well, what if it's true? If uh, these sacred sites and specifically the Gothic cathedrals, which are essentially built uh, in the same manner as a pyramid, I mean, the two are the same thing. They just happen to be designed for a different, uh, a different age. And, um, and also built by people, by the way, who actually understood the Egyptian mystery secrets, by the way, had nothing to do with the church whatsoever. Um, so the Russians looked at all of this information and they said, well, what if it's true if you build a, a place, a room that's in a special location and usually where all the Earth's energy lines happen to meet, which and these lines are everywhere, by the way. Um, what if you build a certain room in a certain shape, a certain geometry, and certain mathematical ratios, can you influence the state of mind? And they found out that, yes, you can, uh, just like in, in a Gothic cathedral. If you stand a person in the middle of the aisle and you basically chant Gregorian music into the building, the mathematics of the building and the sacred geometry of the building uh, is able to raise your uh, brain waves to 4,000% above normal consciousness. So imagine, it's like taking drugs without the side effects. 
I mean, your brain literally is on drugs, on the, on the actual frequency of the actual building. And when they built these rooms in the Bulgaria, they found that when they built rooms shaped like the pentagram, which is actually the symbol of healing, uh, the healing ability of people went up dramatically. And they uh, also found that if you put schizophrenics in a room shaped like a trapezoid, they also uh, developed a huge sense of healing uh, to the point where you could uh, also create uh, environments like a, a sphere. And if you put blood inside the sphere, the rate of coagulation also goes up. So they obviously found out very quickly that shape and the location of the building has a huge impact on uh, organic life and, of course, uh, your state of consciousness. And this is simply because they were, uh, had no money and they figured if we can do this, it would be like free technology. And, of course, it was. Do you think as well, just to jump in there as well, uh, Freddie, do you think as well, because I thought of a question from that, do you think the ancients actually sort of, to do that, what you were saying there about that, do you think they, they, they may have actually developed understanding that the body is actually a vibration? Oh, absolutely. Uh, everything was, uh, in fact, the, the original priests uh, were actually... Um, physicians and musicians at the same time yeah. they recognize that everything in the universe is vibration that's something that we now understand to be absolutely true uh, if you look at the human body or a computer if you look down at an electron microscope it turns out that uh, the body or a computer are not very physical at all um, you all you see at the very heart of the uh, these physical structures is a geometric lattice made up of electrons and uh, other ons uh, which I won't even go into because I can't remember them. Um, but basically, there are all of these little sort of um, minute microscopic little uh, electrical impulses vibrating at a very fast speed. And if you influence their state of vibration, you can alter their matter. Uh, this is why when the military was working with sound uh, back in the 30s, they recognized pretty quickly that uh, depending on the frequency and the amplitude of the sound signal, you can either make weak grow or you can also uh, liquidize a human body, which they actually did. Uh, and uh, so frequency, vibration is absolutely paramount to everything. Uh, if you look at actually the um, mandalas that uh, the Tibetan monks so carefully put together, you know, one piece at a time, it's wonderful just watching them making these mandalas from day to day. Um, if you look at those mandalas and you look at the uh, Native American mandalas and uh, all other sacred art from around the world, it's all basically um, vibrational patterns. Uh, if you were to take a membrane, put some powder on it and vibrate it, you get exactly the same geometrical shapes. So this sacred art really is a very ancient way of them demonstrating that they had complete understanding of the molecular laws of nature. How they got there, of course, is another matter. Yeah. Uh, did it come through experimentation, shamanism? Uh, was it diffused by an earlier civilization that is now under the ocean, uh, which I have to believe, and many like Graham Hancock believe the same thing, and we can prove it. Um, I think that the, it shows that uh, we have been on the earth for much, much longer than we're given credit for. It could be, we could be around for millions of years. Uh, we may, we may now be living as part of a, uh, at the tail end of a very long trail of civilizations, and we don't even uh, know it because of all the cycles that have gone down. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that as well. And I just want to throw throw in the mix there as well. I know this is a bit of a, a sort of a lot of people call this a will we sort of question. But I was actually thinking when you were saying there as well, I was because in my mind as well, I'm also open to the fact as well it could be the possibility that it could also come from a different 
part of this in the cosmos like another sort of alien race actually could have come down and maybe passed this information on as well well not not really i mean if you talk to the lakota uh natives up in uh the american prairie uh if you mention uh, star people to them they'll just go what do you want to know they come here every few weeks yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's how they approach it for them alien people uh absolutely run the mill yeah. um the trick is how much credit are we actually giving space brothers for our own development mm-hmm. uh, this is the big question and uh, it's hard to answer yeah. because you know um it's a lot, very, very big subject. Um, I think that there was, um, before the flood, 11,000 years ago, I believe that there was a humanoid race here uh, on several parts of the Earth that were way ahead of everybody else. Uh, to them, we would be like Neanderthals, and we were Neanderthals. Uh, it would be comparable to you and I going to New Guinea into the deepest mountains of Borneo or somewhere and suddenly coming across a, uh, a civilization of people who are walking around naked and barely able to make fire, which of course still exists. Uh, and these people would have been smart enough to leave you alone because you know that you should never uh, uh, interact uh, or at least influence the development of another species. You've got to let them you know, figure out their own way. And I think, and the... Uh, the evidence it seems to be pointing that when the uh, Earth was hit by seven meteorites 11,000 years ago, and we have the impact craters to show it, uh, that the flood wiped out mostly everybody. And a lot of these advanced people lost their land and they came uh, to the continents. And that's where we start getting the myths of these gods that came across the water and gave us agriculture, animal husbandry, how to build architecture and stuff like that. Because suddenly it just explodes out of nowhere. You have you go from Neanderthal to uh, civilization in the blink of an eye. And only an outside uh, force could have intervened. But the thing is, when you hear the, the descriptions of these people, they don't seem to be that unusual to uh, human, humanoids. The, the only thing that's, that's difference to them is that they usually got long heads or elongated skulls, and they're quite tall and sometimes quite giant as well. But so it seems to me that there was another humanoid race here. That's not to say that there's not been alien presence either. I think that there have been from time to time certain influences. But like I said, if they were that smart, they would know not to uh, intervene in the development of another species. Um, If you're Star Trek fans, you'll understand this. It's called the Prime Directive. Uh, And Gene Roddenberry actually attended a lot of seances where he actually hardwired a lot of the information, uh, this universal information from uh, consciousness, and he hardwired all that into into his program. So the second generation of Star Trek has a lot of uh, universal wisdom in it, dressed up in a space-age theme, and that's why it's so popular. Uh, He couldn't get away with saying, well, I got this from channeled material. You know, he'd be the laughing stock of the world, but you know what? the information makes a lot of sense so the other way that uh, we know that they're also here is because of the genuine crop circles that have been appearing for the last 30 years and i'm talking about the genuine stuff not the rubbish made by people and there are a lot of uh, people out there making uh, stupid things but the genuine circles in the old days which i was researching uh, we showed the uh, symbols to Native American cultures, to Aboriginal cultures, and they reacted really emotionally to them. They said, oh, this is the return of the star people. We know these signs, and that's how we're able to decipher that. So I think your question is absolutely right. Uh, you know, it, it's actually both ways. 
there was a humanoid race here that was much more advanced than normal Neanderthals, and they died out and they passed on their wisdom. And we, from time to time, also get influenced, uh, although it's more of a suggestive influence from alien people uh, who are kind of concerned about the way we're doing things down here. And they kind of they try to sort of shove us in the right direction and try to prevent us from hurting ourselves and, of course, everybody else outside the system. So, but it is a fascinating topic, and I think there's no end of it. Yeah, definitely. We we love delving into it as well, and it was by the way a very good insight there as well and before as well when you were talking about um you were talking about how people when in um in this day and age where you i think you were talking about how yes i think you said scientists or explorers were visiting certain tribes because in the back of my mind there i mean you might know some more on this but it was actually the case as well when when you were talking about how people were visiting the uh, unfound tribe did they actually was it because i heard somewhere i'm sure that they went back as well and they actually studied how their how their sort of um implications of them actually stumbling on them had, had affect their evolution is that true? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. It was a tribe of uh, anthropologists. I think they're on holiday, and they happened to stumble upon this tribe literally by accident. I mean, they were really horrified. They thought, "Shit, we've you know we've really messed up these people's um, you know development because they're actually looking at us as though we're gods. We're yeah. dressed, we have watches, we have cell phones." And they did. They went back a year later very quietly uh, to try and see what impact they had. And yes, within a year, they're now wearing uh, loincloths. Um, there's uh, someone that's now the chief. Before, they had no hierarchy whatsoever. But now this chief, self-appointed chief uh, wears a banana a leaf on his wrist to symbolize that he is a god because he's got a – it's like the, the gods were wearing things on their wrists. Yeah. And suddenly there's a change of power, and suddenly, just by accident, you've intervened in the, in the development of that civilization, for, for better or for worse, we don't know. But certainly, the, the, it's a very uh, poignant story. Yeah, well, it's really fascinating that, by the way, as well. And then, like you were talking about before as well, you were saying about how, you, we, like we said before, we know the structures that, in terms of the construction, in, in sort of simple words, are sort of out of this world. I mean, the, if you look at the size of the... Um, size of the uh, stones that they were even using as well the the cosmic alignment and things like that i mean you were talking about before as well i mean it's when you were talking about their sort of the ancients tapping into this sort of natural law you were saying because it seems to me as well that they were sort of tapping into the sort of this spiritual science that's what that's what we are sort of perceive it and yet you said before as well they built them on ley lines and things like that i mean even the ancients as well they took into consideration all the the elements as well i mean because like you were saying before they didn't they didn't see themselves as separate from nature and the sort of they understood these sort of these finer dim dimensions and understood these sort of real harmonics of nature let's say but it's very yeah 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 but it's yeah. very interesting just from that as well i mean would you say that these ancients as well sort of maybe had knowledge of sort of secret maybe earthbound energies or, or otherworldly knowledge that we don't actually understand today Oh, totally. I mean, it's been proven that every sacred site on the face of the Earth, without exception, is located at the uh, confluence of the uh, Earth's telluric lines. Yeah. Uh, some people call them ley lines. It's not the same thing. Uh, ley lines are geometric alignments uh, between three or more sites of a similar nature. Uh, otherwise, you can construct straight lines between anything and uh, come up with all kinds of nonsense. Uh, but uh, these are the uh, lines of force where electromagnetism flows along the face of the Earth, just like you and I have uh, veins and arteries. The Earth also needs its uh, systems in order to calibrate itself. So wherever you go, and the, in fact, the British Army had some great stories about this when they were doing maneuvers on Wiltshire um, Plain, and uh, they would sometimes march across an entire field with their tanks, and suddenly, for no reason, all the electric equipment went down, including all the tanks. And because they had, they used dowsers, uh, even the Hungarian army uses dowsers, for heaven's sake, uh, and uh, they were able to find that just crossed a, a, an energy line, and it had been active at that particular moment, because... You know, 15 minutes later, they could 
basically restart and everything went forward again. And uh, the dowser in the army, he actually, uh, I actually knew him and he said it was quite funny because uh, I was able to pinpoint the exact uh, energy line that we were on and how he connected an, an old church to a, a, a local giant's grave and a local mound and he eventually went all the way to Stonehenge. It just happened to be that at that moment that line was active. And the funny thing is, in 2009, NASA actually proved this uh, because they actually uh, sent out two press releases. And one was, uh, and I almost can quote this because I almost uh, fell off my chair when I read this. They said that um, whenever we search for the Earth's magnetic lines of energy, we first underground the uh, deposits of underground water because the water attracts the uh, magnetic lines on the surface. And I thought that's exactly what the ancients were doing. They knew this. And then a few years later, they came up with another press release that said um, uh, magnetic portals uh, link the surface of the Earth to the sun every eight minutes. And uh, back in 9000 BC, uh, in the Indian Ayurveda, they wrote about exactly the same thing, that there are certain portals on the face of the Earth, where, of course, they built the temples. Uh, they would open up to the heavens, and they called them the arrows of sorcerers. So in their wonderful way of describing things, they were saying that, yes, if you stand on this spot, uh, X marks the spot, you build a permanent temple to remind people who've lost the plot where the energy is. Yeah. And if you stand here at certain times during the day, a portal will open and you connect to the heavens and you become an arrow of the sorcerer. In other words, you become a conduit of, uh, of the energy of the source. And once you're connected with the source, you can download very valuable information and, and do wonderful things like, oh, levitate stones and stuff like that. You know, stuff that today we get ourselves into a lot of trouble with. Yeah. Mm. I, I think as well, we'll just jump in. Sorry, I, was, no, I think there was, all, there, was a, there was also a study as well, wasn't there? Because I was reading somewhere about there was a study in, um, oh, where was it again? You might know the study as well. I'm not sure if you know it. Was it Princeton or something like that? But there was a, there was a study where they actually um, they did sort of a, um, they did was it they did, did sort of a, a test on a on a stone using I can't remember. I, I'm not too sure. Do you yeah. are you familiar with the study? Yeah. Oh, absolutely! Very familiar. They actually. I think. In fact, I'm honest. I often wonder if they're not actually reading my material and going, "Hey, he sounds like he's got a great idea. Let's go and do it in the laboratory." Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm giving myself too much credit there. Um, but I no, I, I remember that. Very, I remember that well. I mean, it was uh, where they took a piece of quartz and uh, they put it in a tube and they kept throwing sound frequency at it. And once they hit the right amplitude and the right frequency, and uh, there's a sympathetic resonance with the quartz, the quartz basically defies gravity. Uh, because one of the observations that I made years ago after looking at so many sacred sites was, why did they have to drag these huge rocks halfway across the earth? Because, you know, they could have had the local rock. I mean, they, they had to go a few hundred yards. They had you know, perfectly decent rock to work with. But no, they always have to go and source it 400 miles away or something. Yeah. So there had to be something in the rock itself. And the more you observe and the more you listen to the sacred site, and they do talk back to you, believe it or not, they really do. Um, and um, they basically I came to the conclusion that they're looking for a specific type of quartz because so many of the stones are packed with a certain type of quartz. And that's exactly what Princeton, uh, the road that they went down as well. And they were able to do the same thing because my theory was that if you have the right amount of stone and also uh, magnetite also comes uh, is involved. A lot, a lot of the stones used for temples in, uh, have a lot of magnetite in them. So they're actually naturally magnetic. Well, if you put these stones on one of the Earth's energy currents, all you have to do is hit them with the right frequency 
frequency, they can defy gravity, and a small child could literally push these with their finger to where they're supposed to be needed. And that's why there's so many myths around the world that will tell you this, that these temples were built overnight to the sound of vocal commands or sounds. And if they're talking about this in Peru and Central America and in India and in uh, southern England, and these people apparently did not communicate to each other. So how did they come up with the same story? Uh, so thank God that Princeton is now able to show us that there is something to the stories after all. Yes, well, that is absolutely fascinating. And to be honest, I was it's just... so hard to get there, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, I was actually... It was fascinating to me there because I was thinking to myself like when you were talking now I was thinking so how did they understand that the rocks were even magnetized really and they had these um, quartz because I was just thinking there I mean did they, how did they how did they have the technology back then how did they have that connection to the to the source really because they basically were figuring out the laws of nature. I mean, uh, the, the whole idea is to bring yourself in alignment with nature. And nature is everything. I mean, it's the source. Uh, that's what it is. Uh, we just tend to sort of separate things into the, its own little compartments because that's the way we've been brought up in the 21st century. Uh, and, but yet for them, the system was holistic. Uh, they understood that uh, if you understand how nature works, you can understand anything. Uh, it, you don't really require that much knowledge of it. You just have to be aware that it's there and then have to dilute it and I mean uh, distill it and figure out how it works and it goes back to the earlier question about why the temples were built it was to literally uh, allow you if you were not able to do it by yourself it would allow you to have this out-of-body journey uh, where you were able to figure out these laws for yourself then you come back into your body and you go oh okay uh, we need to get these specific types of rocks we need to put them on this conveyor belt and then we need movement and we can build a pyramid in the night not a problem um, if you were to talk this to the Aboriginal people in uh, Australia, they would just say, well, why does it take you people so long to understand this? Uh, because, I mean, they'll go walk about in the middle of the desert and they can see the energy lines. They call them the song lines because for them, they're like invisible cassette tapes. Uh, anybody under 30 listening to this program will have to Google cassette tape, by the way. Um, they basically see them as cassette tapes where you walk along the landscape, a featureless landscape, and you can hear the song of the person that walked there before. So as you turn right, you know you're on the right energy line that will connect you from point A to point B, and that's how they get across the desert. Uh, they know uh, they have a 98% efficiency rate of going from a featureless sand dune to a, another featureless sand dune 15 miles away just by hearing the song that has been recorded from so many people walking that energy line. Because they do, they behave like uh, cassette tapes. They are, they are magnetic, so if you walk on them and you sing, it will remember it as well. Wow. Great insight again, by the way, as well. And before as well, and you brought you brought up again there, but you you did bring it up early in the podcast as well. And um, when you were talking about how the pyramids as well were also sort of made uh, actually to to put people in states of states of consciousness in terms of when you were talking, like in terms of I know in your book as well, you talk about um, death rituals and things like that. But after, when when I was reading that in your book about the death rituals, I found I found it really really fascinating. Could you actually go, go into a bit more of that and explain like what they are? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was fascinated to find out that most of these places were described as tombs, but there's no one yeah. buried there. Uh, and, and that comes from a, a very jaundiced Victorian uh, uh, point of view uh, and a very uh, terrible point of view where some person completely misunderstood the Book of the Dead. In fact, it's not even called the Book of the Dead. It's called the Book of Coming Forth by Light. That changes everything about it. It's about learning about consciousness and the different states of. Because to people like the Egyptians, um, you know, uh, they didn't see uh, life as a sort of uh, end-all and be-all. They saw life as very cyclical and very 
it was stage oriented. I mean, you're here, you come here from another frequency, you appear in the physical world for a certain amount of time, then you bugger off into another level of reality. Yeah. Uh, it's all a bit continual. They didn't see death in the same way we do, in a very Victorian way we used to do. And uh, so this is all misconstrued. So once they found a, a, a big sort of empty box inside the pyramid they thought oh it must have been a burial chamber because we found other places down the valley of the kings to have people in similar sarcophagi and there's bodies in it well yes and no it depends where the building was built as a mortuary temple and we know that they were because these would have inscriptions on the walls it would tell you about the history of the pharaoh and the body would be there the problem is when you start getting to pyramids and anomalous chambers, and there's one in the Valley of the Kings, which is aligned uh, like no other. And when they broke into it, they found the entire section completely sealed. They found the sarcophagus sealed and they opened the lid and there's nobody inside it. And if you read the inscriptions on the walls, it has nothing to do with the burial of the Pharaoh. It's the travel of the Pharaoh into the other world. And he is expected to return to his body and continue living as normal. Uh, it was part of a festival called the Sed Festival. And um, it was conducted every 13 years, uh, sorry, in the 13th year of the Pharaoh's reign. Um, so the, the pyramid is also this, uh, built for the same reasons, that sarcophagus is essentially a very highly tuned box inside another highly tuned chamber. And um, if you stand uh, outside the pyramid and you sort of look at the schematic, it shows quite clearly the path of the initiate. Uh, so if you start off in this deep well, which is the one that you go uh, under the pyramid uh, for anyone who hasn't been there. There is a tunnel, a very, very constricted tunnel that you walk on your hands and knees to get to the original part of the Great Pyramid. And at the end, you basically have a shaft that's now filled in. Well, that's the original site, and it goes to another uh, chamber under that, which used to connect to the Nile. So basically, you used to approach the uh, Great Pyramid from the Nile, under a, a tunnel, into a cave, up a shaft, into this rough chamber and then you slowly make your way up into the Great Pyramid uh, and the, um, the stones get better and better, more polished and they also become higher and higher and higher. And uh, the goal was to eventually reach the King's Chamber and spend a goodly amount of time in there. And um, if an initiate was listening to this uh, program, they would say, well, wait a minute, that's the path of the initiate. You're going from a rough stone into a polished diamond. And just the shape of the stone itself tells you what you're about to do. And we also now know that the frequencies inside the king's chamber uh, are of a such frequency that actually shut down your mental processing. It's a frequency of around 112 hertz. That is a trigger that shuts down your thinking brain and shifts you over to your uh, feeling brain. The idea was to li literally stop you thinking and start feeling because what you're about to achieve now is an out-of-body experience. Um, so essentially they built this uh, artificial mountain to mimic the sacred mountains to where they used to travel in the old days, uh, where you get exactly the same effect by entering a sacred cave with the same energies. And um, when you came back out, and the Pyramid of Unas, by the way, is a great example of this. Uh, when you came back out of this pyramid, you were conducted outside by a group of women who were the priestesses who had the highest level of initiation. And you'd stand on the mound, and the first thing you'd look at would be the rising of Venus on the horizon. And you'd be declared risen from the dead. Because now you can see, uh, and the other ones can't see because you have, they haven't been to where you've been. So all of these temples uh, where no one is buried, 
uh, and there's no inscriptions of any kind except for where they tell you how to go about leaving the body and how to come back in a very safe way, we're all designed to get you to have this wonderful initiation experience, uh, which of course brings us to the whole point of the word initiation, which means to become conscious. Now, once you know that, all of these temples suddenly change all of their uh, face. Very fascinating again, by the way, and it seems as well, to me as well when you're describing the, the, the death rituals there, it seems to me like, they were, I mean, maybe it's not, I'm just maybe putting two and two together in mind, but it seems like it's a um, sort of like a sensory deprivation tank where they're actually sort of shutting out shutting out all the sort of um, external sort of sound and external environment to actually put where, where they can put their minds in these altitudes of consciousness, just like people do now as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and even beyond that, that's uh, a good point. Uh, if you go to like the uh, West Kennet Long Barrow in Wiltshire, uh, that specific one was designed for a shamanic journey. And uh, again, it has the electromagnetic energy going through it. Uh, one of Britain's most popular energy lines uh, runs right through it. Uh, the Michael line uh, goes right down the backbone of East Anglia, right down to Cornwall, connects about 800 sacred sites. Um, it's oriented to the equinox sunrise and the rising of Venus, which of course is the uh, symbol of the initiate. And the mound itself is built from alternating layers of organic and inorganic material. And that just by itself shuts down and absorbs all the outside frequencies, which today is very important because of all the cell phone towers and all this rubbish that we're surrounded with. And once you go into inside that environment, you can actually feel the huge difference. It's like you, your brain just shuts down all of a sudden and you can actually appreciate the site. You don't even have to understand any of this. Yeah. You just go there and do it for yourself. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the sarsen and the water and all of these things start to create their own unique electromagnetic environment. And then that allies to your brain waves uh, and it basically reduces uh, your brainwave frequency to a point where you come down to, I think it's about seven hertz. It's a very low frequency. But once your brain is attuned to that in, 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 uh, inner frequency of the, uh, the mounds, you essentially have the same frequency of uh, healers and uh, psychics when they are working. In other words, you are in between worlds. You have acclimatized your body to be in between worlds. Uh, and that's why they were built uh, again. Uh, and they also, if you go to West Kennet or anything like that, or even one of the Central American mounds, uh, you will notice how they're built like the mouth of a beast, like they're about to devour you. And that was the whole point. Uh, the stones looked like the teeth of a big monster. You were supposed to be uh, devoured and chopped up into little pieces like Osiris. And uh, the idea was, it was a metaphor, it was to make sure that you uh, remembered to take as little of your physical self into the actual mound because when your soul is trying to leave the body, you need to be as light as possible. Uh, you should fast. Uh, you shouldn't even take uh, do alcohol or anything. You should let the soul uh, have as much free reign as possible to let it escape as freely as possible. Otherwise, your journey is going to be a little bit problematic, uh, which is why it usually took you know months and months of preparation uh, to do these journeys. I mean, people who do the ayahuasca trips to Central America, uh, they're going there for like to become weekend shamans, and uh, yeah. the shamans would just laugh at this. They'll think, well, whatever, <laughs> just give us the money. Uh, because that's not how you're supposed to do it. You, gotta, you need at least three to six months of preparation to do it properly. And then when you leave the body, it's, uh, it's an induced near-death experience. And, uh, you know, you come back a little bit groggy, but you, your experience is much more vivid. It's not just images that appear in your mind. You are actually, are actually there. Yeah, before as well, um, Freddie, when you were describing the uh, the death rituals as well, just to touch back on that again. I mean, you were you were talking about how they actually the death rituals actually f made them form an understanding that death is a beautiful thing and, and a beautiful experience. I mean, it's very interesting because I was actually thinking. I mean, 
death is one of the the sort of one of the biggest questions actually what like everyone's always asking like me and Chris are always asking what happens when we die it's a big like one of the biggest questions in the human mind and obviously we know as well like you said before the ancients possibly trying to figure that out and we are now also there's a lot of people now questioning trying to figure that out as well I mean um, it's very interesting to me I mean do you think how do you actually think as well them death rituals because I was actually thinking how on other levels how them death rituals may have actually impacted the ancients minds because I'm actually thinking that them death rituals could have actually also altered the way that the ancients actually sort of viewed their reality as well could have that been the case well there are two types uh, of uh, death ritual one was of course a symbolic uh, where you came back into the body completely alive and then there was the actual physical death itself the end of life itself and uh, there's one inscription on the temple of Unas uh, which is deciphered recently and uh, it said very clearly uh, that, uh, you know, it's very useful for a dead person to have these instructions for certain, but even more useful for a person who is alive on Earth. Uh, anyone who understands these images on, on the walls, and these instructions, is a well-provided light being. Always they can leave the body and return whenever they want in complete control, um, proven to be true a million times. Yeah. That was in 2600 BC. So if they've been doing this a million times, I mean, God knows how long they've been knowing to do this. But the idea was that they understood totally that your soul is the most important thing. Uh, and that uh, to be able to put yourself in a situation where your soul or where you are aware of your soul and your soul is in control of you, not your body in control of your soul, that was the whole key to everything. Because when you actually are walking uh, along the earth and getting on with your daily life and are aware of the bigger picture of things, and you can, you know, you have a certain degree of control over the forces of nature, so you're, you kind of bend things to your uh, intent. And I can tell you from experience that magic really does happen when you have a certain degree of control over your intent. And... Um, but at the same time, when you finally reached your physical death, because you no longer have any fear of death, and you know that there's so much more going on, in fact, the physical world is such a minute portion of the universe. Uh, a lot of these cultures are actually said that when you, know, when you die, you're actually going to the room next door. You're not going very far away at all. Yeah. Don't think you're going off on this big journey. You're literally are in the next room. Um, but they said that uh, as you're preparing to physically die, now you are in complete control of fear. That was the most important thing that they specified, and that was you must learn to control your fear that, because it can control you and others can control you with it. If you can overcome fear, you've made huge progress. So when you're about to die physically, uh, you understand these uh, concepts. You know that when you your soul leaves the body, you're going to see a lot of weird stuff, a lot of discarnate stuff, a lot of unusual creatures because they don't exist on Earth, and it will frighten the hell out of you unless you know what uh, what you're prepared for and that's why they wrote this stuff on the walls and that's why it said it was useful for a person who's uh, dead but also someone who's alive so the idea was to experience this while you're still alive because once you reach your final uh, physical death then well it's not really that big a jump mm. well wow, that's fascinating it's a really deep insight into the um, the lives of the death rituals as well um, Freddie what I was bear in mind that all our history everything that we've learned in school of the last 120 years has come from a very narrow minded uh, northern European point of view where they really misunderstood just about everything that they saw and everything that was told them uh, because they had such a narrow understanding of life to begin with uh, and they were they were basically treating others according to their own social calendar. And of course, when you go from, say, industrialized Britain to the middle of the Sahara, 
the same rules don't apply. Uh, and of course, there was this wonderful colonial uh, idea that somehow these people from Europe were so much superior to everybody else. They just didn't listen properly. They didn't understand that these people had their own vision of doing things. They had their own advanced way of looking at things. Uh, and so we're still now um, sort of eating away at that history. This is why people, um, you know, like myself, are usually branded as alternative historians or pseudo historians and yeah. pseudo archaeologists. Because, you know, we're basically chipping away at this um, holy grail of stupidity, which uh, basically has very little foundation. It's a very shaky foundation. And once you look at the evidence and the facts, these facts do not hold up very well at all. And uh, it's nice to see so many people now questioning this because we're developing such a, a much more unique understanding of how things really are. Yeah, and that's what we're all about. We're really all about exposing a lot of like unanswered history at the minute and unanswered a lot in consciousness as well and loads of other different realms, even from just health to every, everything we dive into, what might have been missed in history. We actually go there and that's that's what I love about what we do. Um, Excellent. Freddie, I was just thinking, because it's been on my mind, um, did all the people in these ancient cities where there was like um, a sacred pulsating higher frequency temple, like... Did they all have this connection to these higher states of consciousness? Because it feels right, like right now, like right now in this reality, that many of our minds and bodies have been like taken on so many different frequency levels. Is, is there a connection here? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the center of every single civilization uh, rests upon a single pillar. Uh, they usually call it the navel of the world. Uh, in uh, northern France, because you have your menhirs, your large upright stones, and they're basically with the focal point of every single town, every single civilization. And again, as I said earlier, there were focal points for you to concentrate on, to look upon this and say, ah, okay, I really must remind myself to be like this pillar, like this perfect stone. Uh, and eventually we build temples on top of these to make them even more appealing, because obviously once you look at a stone for a long time, it loses its appeal. Uh, so they had to make the, the temples look even more appealing. Yeah. Uh, but again, as long as you walk by this every day, you are reminded of it uh, to be, you know, to be perfect like the temple. Compose yourself and uh, comport yourself in daily life as the temple. You want to be the mirror image of perfection so that others would look at you and say, hey, this guy's got it right. Uh, let's try and do what they're doing. Uh, but the problem is that, you know, here on earth, we have something called free will. You can't force everybody to go the same way, and some people get it, and some don't, and that's the way it always will be. Uh, so the idea was to show by example, uh, lead by example, and have the uh, these temples to be a place where the, that was open to anybody that was curious. Uh, and in fact, I asked the, uh, asked the same question years ago: Was this a sort of elitist thing? Yeah. Uh, well, it turns out that it wasn't. Uh, there's actually in the British Museum a wonderful spirit door. Uh, which again, it was put in a place where no one is buried, even though it's described as coming from a burial chamber. Uh, but as the Egyptians said, a place of uh, rest is not necessarily one's final resting place. And you've got to be very careful to label a tomb as being a tomb or it just being a chamber for another reason. Uh, and in this wonderful spirit door, it, uh, it's wonderful because it describes the amazement by a servant in the household of the Pharaoh Teti uh, at being asked to join the, pharaoh, the pharaoh's secret inner group uh, because he was 
curious. You know, he showed he showed interest in what the pharaoh was doing, and the pharaoh said, "Ah, why don't you come and and do what we do, and you'll find yourself in a very different environment." And um, he basically is shown the ropes. Uh, he does not reveal the exact initiation because that was forbidden. And then at the end, he says and proclaims joyfully. And at the end, after being administered into the secret, ch- uh, the chamber of restricted access, I found the way. Now, that might not mean anything to anybody, but the way was essentially what the Essenes were practicing at the time of Jesus, and also from where Jesus learned all his information about the resurrection, the living resurrection, because no one ever got nailed to a physical cross, and no one actually physically came back from the dead. That's just not possible. And the early Christians said exactly the same thing. And that phrase, the way, goes all the way back through Persia. It goes all the way back to China in 2800 BC. And it was being practiced by a group of people called the Gentlemen of the Way. And it included women as well. Uh, It was just a a euphemism. And uh, they basically uh, described themselves as being part of this group of spiritual people who were just curious. It was open to everybody that was curious. And uh, they went on these big pilgrimages to these sacred mountains where they had geomagnetic hotspots, and they were said to enter the mountain. So they found the exact hotspot of energy on the mountain. They went to the sacred cave. They didn't have to build themselves a temple, and uh, they came out completely awakened. In fact, they called themselves the Risen. Uh, eventually, you find um, this this uh, information in uh, in India, and they describe the people uh, who were had gone through this initiation as being awoken, and the and the ordinary people as the corpses. Uh, and that's where the um, the problem really uh, went at the time of Jesus. You had the fundamental Christians that took this a completely different way around. They looked at all this information literally, and they began to associate a resurrection as being the, the idea of some guy getting nailed to a cross and physically getting up three days later into a dead body. Yeah. And the Gnostic Christians were saying, no, 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 you, that's not what it is. Uh, and of course, there was a huge fight between the two and the, and the fundamentalist won. They basically wiped out everybody and they're all using the same thing. And by the way, the uh, Quran says exactly the same thing as the Gnostic Christians do. So you see, when you look at this information, you can see how our concept of uh, literal death and spiritual uh, death are two very, very different things. We began to look at, it, at the information literally and we began to apply it literally. Yeah, very different. I love that insight, by the way, as well. And in, in be, like through all this podcast as well, we've been talking about how we understand that the sort of the ancient cultures were navigating the spiritual world. I mean, have you ever thought about why they were actually sort of, I know you've touched on a few points, but just to go a little bit more deeper, I mean, have you ever like thought why the ancients sort of did give, all these ancient cultures all around the world, did give this great importance to sort of navigating the spiritual world? Because I'm actually thinking, and maybe I would love to see your thoughts, were they actually sort of seeking the sort of the mysteries of the universe, just like maybe us three are now as well? Yes, very much so. Nothing. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. They were basically doing what you and I are doing. Uh, why am I here? What is the purpose to life? Uh, how can I make my world a better place? And how can I be more in control of my conscious process? Uh, we're still asking the same questions a million years later, uh, like you know, re- rediscovering the wheel. Uh, I don't think it was any different for them than it is for us now. It's just that back then they were working with natural elements, and today we work with uh, iPods and computers. Uh, We're just using different tools to achieve the same effect. And again, some get it and, and some don't. And I just wanted to say as well, Freddie, we'll wrap it up now as well. And I just wanted to say as well, you've definitely made our world a better place, made our listeners' world a better place as well. Oh, well, thank you. And expanded our mind as well. And I think this, this is probably a really nice place to wrap it up as well. And it's been an absolute fantastic conversation and so good to delve in a, a fantastic mind like yours. Mm, thank oh, you so much for coming you. on. 
Well, next time I'm there, Newcastle, you'll owe me a pint. Yeah. yeah. Next time you're in Newcastle, we'll have to do this in person. <laughs> Absolutely. A couple of pints of brown ale. Yeah, yeah. I'm feeling homesick now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could do with some fish and chips now. Yeah, I'll, 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 take, a, I'll take a coconut water. Chris will take a pint. I wouldn't leave you Wow, what a podcast that was. Very interesting stuff. And so many different interesting thinking points emerging from this conversation with Freddie in my mind. Such a great conversation. And he will definitely be coming back onto the podcast in the near future as there were so many other areas that we wanted to delve into with him. So we're really looking forward to our next conversation with him. But in the meantime, if you do want to delve more into Freddie's mind, please head over to his website, www.invisibletemple.com. And also please check out his incredible books, The Lost Art of Resurrection, The Divine Blueprint, Secrets in the Fields, which can all be found in the usual places. And we've also put all the books in the show notes at the Send podcast website as well. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please think about becoming a Patreon member and joining the community and supporting the podcast. And as you know, me and Chris embody so much of our time and lives in this podcast. And we really do just want to continue, keep bringing you more and more amazing conversations and content. And with your help, we can do that. and We'll take this to another level. So if you do believe in what we're doing and want to support this podcast, please go to our Patreon page and join the community. We even have a $2 award tier that gives you access to bonus content, special bonus conversations and other rants that don't just quite make the podcast. And we've also just added a new one-hour podcast conversation to that Patreon page as well. So if you do want to support the podcast and become a patron, please go to www.patreon.com and support the podcast. And we'd really, really appreciate it. And I just want to also say as well, we love that you are all coming on this journey with us. We're a part of your journey and all you are a big part of ours. So anyway, we'll catch you next week. We love you all. Keep seeking everyone. Peace. Peace.